0: better at this than I did at reading the book of acts I was thinking after that it's like man is that the first time I've read the bible or what I mean I can't believe I mean I preached last week at a different church over in Epping I guess technically and then led Wednesday night bible study now I'm preaching this. I don't know how I did this for 16 years. I mean, I even led worship half of those times. Cookie, Chris, Paul, and others can kind of vouch for that. Not as good as Stephen, though, so it was good. So we are in the book of Revelation today. And the book of Revelation, as Stephen pointed out last week, is it's apocalyptic in nature. I mean, This apocalyptic genre is quite full of prophecy. It is a prophetic genre, but it it differs from typical prophecy in a certain way, and that is apocalyptic literature is just full of symbols and highly... Um, symbolic language. It can get really confusing at times. You know, apocalyptic writing like what we have here in Revelation or parts of, you know, Ezekiel or Daniel or even what Jesus says in his Olivet Discourse in, in the Gospels. This kind of writing often causes our head to just spin and it just breeds Boatloads of speculation. Now, the good news for our church here is that we're only looking at, over the coming weeks, the first three chapters of Revelation. It really gets kind of crazy and wild when you start at chapter 4 and you go up through 21. I mean, things can get really difficult, But we are today looking at the first of seven letters. Now, last week, Stephen gave an overview of what the first chapter of Revelation talks about. And he set the stage for today's sermon and six more sermons to follow. And he said that each of these sermons would be a sermon given on one of the seven messages Given to the seven angels so that the seven churches, which are seen as lampstands, might not lose their lampstand. I mean, head spinning, right? It's just kind of, it's kind of different. It's kind of odd. But the thing is, and the truth of the matter is, you know, we cannot ignore the book of Revelation just because it's difficult. There's a lot in Scripture that's difficult. So we can't ignore the book of Revelation. And last week we even heard in chapter 1 that there's a blessing for those who will read, hear, and keep the words of Revelation. There's a blessing. Now we know that there is a blessing associated with reading all of Scripture and that's something that in this church we really believe, that in this book we are told the things that God wants us to know about him, that God wants us to know about ourselves and about others and about the world around us. And most importantly in this book is the message of the gospel that God wants us to desperately know the truth that saves So as we prepare to open up the book of Revelation, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, please take one from one of the chairs that are around you, take it, take it home, call it your own and read it that you might know the truths of God. Today we are going to be in Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 1, Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Right off, first verse, three possible symbols, three methods possibly of symbolic speech in one verse. Not bad, it gets worse than that as you go on further in the book. Now, Stephen addressed the word angel last week, and he talked about that there are a few different interpretations. One is that it refers to a literal spiritual being. He talked about maybe the guardian angels that some believe over the churches, and he also pointed out that the, the underlying word means messenger. In the original Greek, it means messenger, so some people will also say that what this is is it's a... It's a picture of the leadership of these seven local churches. So let's say the elders. You know, Jesus is saying, take this letter, listen to what I say, take it, give it to the elders of the church of Ephesus. It it can be that way taken as well. What's more important is that we see something here about this first verse. We need to see that Jesus himself, the risen Christ, the omnipotent, transcendent God, is telling his people that he has an important message for them. This is a message from Christ to his church. Now, after the word angel, we do read about something that is very real and very literal, and that is, this letter is written to a church. This church exists, and I can assure you that Ephesus existed. It's a real church that it existed in that place and in that time, and I can assure you that because like Stephen, Marilyn and I Actually, have visited Ephesus, and I have Stephen's slide up here, slide one. And this is a picture of Ephesus, the main corridor that I think Stephen took. I had one similar, but his quality was better, so I used his. Uh, and you see going down that walkway, and then you see the Celsius li- library at the end, which, which came you know a decade or two later, but was one of the, the larger libraries in the world. I think it was number two after Alexandria, if I remember correctly. But this is a real church, and it really existed so we have to ask ourselves, what do we know about that church and that city? Well, first off, the city of Ephesus was in Asia, which today is known as modern Turkey. So it's in Turkey today, these seven churches. And Ephesus is roughly 40 miles by air from the Greek island of Patmos. Now, guess what? I've got a picture of Patmos slide, two. So, the island is Patmos, and that cave on the bottom right is where tradition says that the Apostle John lived in exile, and that in that cave he had the visions and he wrote Revelation. Now, of course, in his day, you didn't have all the Greek Orthodox or the, the Orthodox Christian paraphernalia in there, but it was just a cave. But this is a real place that existed. Now, Ephesus itself, when when we were there, the first thing that amazed me when the tour guide said this city had at least 300,000 people living in it. I never had that picture in my mind, that Ephesus would have been such a grand city, so large, that so many people in the ancient times lived in one place. And Ephesus was the most important city in Asia. It it sat on a river that went out to sea, and it had a large natural harbor at the time that was a commercial trading port, and most of the trade routes by, by river and by land went through the city of Ephesus. So it was a very important commercial trading center. And also, Ephesus was a very pagan city, where people practiced magical arts, according to Acts chapter 19, verse 18. And Ephesus was where the Roman emperor Domitian reinstated imperial cult worship, uh, emperor worship. He made Ephesus the center of emperor worship, even making a big old statue of himself that people could revere. Now... As if magic and emperor worship aren't enough. Ephesus was also the site of the temple of the goddess Artemis, or in Latin, Diana. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This temple was like 425 feet long, uh, 200 and some feet wide, had hundreds of 60-foot tall columns, I think, Two-thirds of them were plated in gold. It was an amazing place. And inside of this temple of Artemis, we're told in Acts chapter 19 as well, that there was an image of the goddess Artemis that had fallen from heaven that people were revering. Now, Scholars today believe that image was probably a meteorite that had fallen to earth, and when people looked at it, it had certain characteristics that reminded them of certain female body parts, and that's just kind of where we're going to leave it here. But it was inside of this temple. And also at the temple, there were hundreds of priestesses, also known as prostitutes, that served in the temple as well. It was a very pagan city. That's just some about the city. But what do we know about the church that met and gathered in that city? What about the church in Ephesus that this letter is written to? What do we know about that? Well, roughly 50 to 55 AD, depending on who who you read... Paul seems to have planted this church in Ephesus along with Apollos, who is a theologian. Uh, We read about him in Acts chapter 18, and also Aquila and Priscilla, uh, a spiritually mature Christian couple. They got together, this church was being planted at the time, and during his lifetime, Paul will spend three years in Ephesus, more than he does in any other church. Paul's got a lot invested In Ephesus. And when Paul leaves for Macedonia, uh, 1 Timothy 1 3 tells us that he left Timothy behind in Ephesus as an elder in charge. Then around 63 AD, Paul writes a letter to the Ephesians, and I'll tell you what, it's a phenomenal letter. I mean, I just love the letter to the Ephesians, and Paul writes that letter to them. Now, tradition tells us that the Apostle John, who had been exiled on the island of Patmos, that he himself lived in Ephesus, and that that's where he brought Mary, Jesus' mother, to live. That's what tradition says, and that the two of them actually died in Ephesus. And Tradition also says that after his exile, John returned to Ephesus as kind of the chief elder of the city before he did die there. I mean, there's a lot in Ephesus. It had, that church had some good leadership. And we know from Acts chapter 19... This is something that's great about this. Even though there's all this paganism, we know from Acts chapter 19 that although paganism abounded in Ephesus, the gospel and the church of Jesus Christ flourished there as well. I mean, so much so did that church influence the culture of Ephesus that even many of those People practicing magic, they brought their books together and they burned them after they came to know Christ. And we read about in the book of Acts also, there's this big old riot that takes place in Ephesus because the way, because Christianity is causing so many people to turn from idol worship to the living God that the idol makers, those associated with the temple of Artemis, you know what, they were losing money. And nobody would like that, so these riots break out. So the, the church in Ephesus had great impact on the culture of Ephesus, such an impact that lives were being changed. I mean, I pray that NBC, that our church here, has the same kind of impact over time on the city of Nashua, that it even changes the culture of the city of Nashua. That our church and the other churches in this area were to do that. It would just be a blessing. So Jesus has started out and he's told the church in Ephesus that he holds seven stars, these seven messengers in his right hand and that he is walking amongst the lampstands, the churches. Now this is a great vision it's a I mean I I cannot even imagine what this picture of Christ looks like I mean the, last week we saw that when John and this is the John that you know laid his head against Jesus's bosom and you know he was the youngest of the apostles and last week this same John sees the glorified Christ in heaven and he falls down to his face I mean this is what we're seeing. The church in Ephesus is hearing from Christ that he holds those messengers in his right hand, and the right hand being the hand of power and authority. And that word holds implies that he has a strong grip, that he is holding fast those messengers, those, those angels, those church elders, and that they will not be loosed from his hand. And in addition to having this power and authority, Jesus is also, he says, walking amongst the churches, amongst the lampstands. In other words, he's continually in the midst of those churches. And that phrase, walks among I mean, there's a flashback in that phrase that takes us back to the beginning, to the garden, to the the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 8, where we see God the creator walking among Adam and Eve in the garden. And also in Leviticus, chapter 26, verse 12, we hear God himself tell his people Israel, I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. That's the tone that this church is hearing. And then Jesus continues in verse 2, and he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Twice in those verses we hear the phrase, I know. And Jesus' knowing is a common theme throughout all seven of the church letters we will see. Jesus knows. Now, quite frankly, I mean, I love our pastor here. He knows a lot about a lot of us. He knows a lot about this church, but I guarantee you, he doesn't know everything about every one of us. But here we get this implication that Jesus knows everything about everyone and about Everything, you know, just about as the entirety of his church, he knows and he knows intimately. Nothing escapes Jesus. We will see in these letters, nothing escapes him. Not the good, not the bad, not the ugly. Nothing escapes him. And would we really expect anything less from Jesus? I mean we learn in scripture in Colossians 1:16 6, that that Jesus is the creator that all things were created by him so wouldn't he know about all those things and Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 we hear that he sustains all things he holds all things together and we read in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 that you know Jesus is the author and the finisher or the author and the perfecter of our faith I mean, we know that Jesus knows everything. We expect him to know everything. He is God. And as part of what Jesus knows, he points out, and he just pointed out some really amazing qualities about the church in Ephesus. And I'll tell you what, I'm just standing up here, I I would really just love it if Jesus were to send a letter like this to Nashua Baptist. And he says, you know, I know. I know, Nashville Baptist, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You know, wouldn't you just love for Jesus to, to write something like that to us? And how we have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And found them to be false. and he, you know Wouldn't we love Jesus to say, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. And you have not grown weary. I just love it. I mean, I'll tell you what. If Jesus sent that message here, it would be a great day of rejoicing. I mean, we'd probably have some smoked pork. <laughs> you know, people would bring these awesome side dishes and these award-winning desserts. I mean, the elders, the deacons, the leadership team, they'd be walking around, holding up their head high, kind of strutting, you know, we got this, we're doing good. I mean, I suspect that as the messenger began to read this letter to the church in Ephesus, there was a bit of strutting going on at that point. They were really happy. They were feeling really good about themselves. Not only does Jesus know their good works, their works, he knows that they're toiling at that, that they're putting effort in, and that they're patiently enduring. He knows all of that. He also knows that they cannot tolerate those who preach false messages, a false gospel, all the while professing to do so in the name of God. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he speaks of such men that Jesus is pointing out here, these, these false apostles. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians verse 11. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. If you don't have any clue what any of this is about, go home. And this is probably the only time you'll ever hear me say this. Turn on one of those so-called popular Christian TV stations and just look for somebody that is telling you that you've got to send your seed money into their ministry so that God is able to grow a blessing in your life. That's who I'm talking about. You know what? Ephesus was looking at those kind of preachers on TV. They were turning off the TV. They were finding those preachers, and they were riding them out of town on a rail. They just weren't tolerating any of that. And Jesus likes that. Now, also... By the time Ephesus receives this message, Paul himself has been in glory probably 28, 30 years with Christ. But if he had still been alive on earth at the time, he would have been proud of the Ephesians for what Jesus is telling him. Why do I know this? Is because in Acts chapter 20, knowing he will never return to Ephesus, Paul He's on a ship, he goes to Miletus, which is downriver from Ephesus, and he calls the elders of the church in Ephesus together for a meeting with him. At which time, there's a lot of tears, there's a lot of heartfelt emotion, but there's also a warning that Paul gives to the elders from Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31, we read what this warning was. Paul tells the elders, be careful, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which, is, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my Departure. Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. You know when Brent came up here and he he prayed before I came up, he mentioned how these letters you know, are applicable also to this church. Well, I'll tell you what, those words of Paul to the elders in Ephesus, those words are applicable to this church too. I mean, I think the elders of this church, we ourselves need to also pay careful attention to us, to ourselves, and to Christ's flock here. I mean, these are truths that that pass through all eternity. And remain important. The Ephesians have sound doctrine. They're performing good works and they're ministering for Christ's glory. They are persevering in the faith even while enduring hardship, a fancy word for persecution in some ways. And the Church in Ephesus hasn't grown weary following Jesus either. I mean, Jesus is commending them for all of that. Everything is marvelous for Ephesus. And then comes verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. No one really knows what Jesus is referring to when he tells Ephesus that they've abandoned the love they had at first. There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of assumption made. Nobody really knows exactly. Maybe Ephesus, maybe the church in Ephesus, abandoned the love they had at first for the word of God and for prayer. Maybe they had abandoned the love they had at first for one another, for the body of Christ. Maybe it was a love of serving Jesus, of ministering to those in the name of Christ that they had walked away from. Because that's what abandon means, that they've, they've left it behind, they've kind of walked away. Maybe what happened is their love for serving Jesus they had just kind of walked away from, they had abandoned. Maybe their service to the church, maybe their ministry to others had become more about just another scheduled event I have to do than a loving act and heartfelt worship towards God. You know, I catch myself, I'm always in the habit, well, I I have to preach tomorrow. And my friend, which some of you know, Kevin, pastors at a church in Manchester, and his church has this big, all these t-shirts that say, we get to, you know. We get to minister. We get to preach. We get to teach. We get to love. I mean, it's, it's a totally different mindset. Maybe those in Ephesus had kind of just abandoned their love for serving Christ through ministry. It just had become this motions they were going through. Maybe. Or maybe the Ephesians had abandoned Jesus himself. Maybe their love for Jesus was no longer their first love as it had been in the beginning. I know, you know, when we're first saved, the gospel is so amazing. It's like, how could you love us so much, Jesus? And uh, then as time goes on, maybe some of the amazement and awe of God's love expressed to us, the gospel had worn off and they had just kind of, Abandoned Jesus himself as their first love. We just don't know for sure. But there is something that we do know for sure. Even though the Ephesians abandoned the love that they had at first, Jesus had not abandoned the Ephesians. He was still walking amongst them. He still had them in his grip. He had not left them. He had not abandoned his love for the church in Ephesus. I mean, the good news is for Ephesus, and you know what the good news is for us, that our salvation is not a matter of what we do or do not do. Decades earlier, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul has this wonderful chapter. Actually, it's all wonderful, but in particular, I'm thinking of chapter 2, where Paul had told the Ephesians that they had been saved by grace through faith. And that faith was not even of themselves but it was a gift from God. And it was not the result of their works. Even if they had abandoned Christ Jesus, their, their affection from him, for him had diminished, Jesus still had them. He still loved them. They were still saved by his grace and his mercy. Our salvation is not contingent upon are getting it right And neither was the salvation Of the believers in the church In Ephesus Even when we Fail one another Or fail God We're still saved Because Jesus has already Lived a righteous Life on our behalf And he has already Been punished For our sins In our place whatever love the church of Ephesus had abandoned that they had once had at first, Jesus so lovingly is calling them back to the things that they once did, to the love that they once had. He's calling them back to himself. Why? Because he loves them. In fact, Jesus' rebuke there, his verbal discipline of them in verse 4 is clear evidence that he still loves this church. I'm thinking of the words in Hebrews chapter 12 which quote Proverbs 3. It's like my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God is treating you as sons. If you are left without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Jesus, God loves this church in Ephesus. Verse 4 is not about tearing Ephesus down at all. Verse 4 is not about throwing out all the good that Ephesus is doing and is still doing. Verse 4 is not about anything that is going to destroy Ephesus, but it's about building them up. Verse 4 is about Jesus loving his own enough to warn them of a matter of their hearts that if it is left unchecked, will overshadow all the good that they've ever done and will bring great harm to them and their church in the future. Man, Jesus is loving to share with us the truth no matter how hard it might hurt. Now, as always is the case, when the Spirit convicts us, he also has a game plan for us to get back on track. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Jesus, with his words, has reproved Ephesus, has rebuked them, has, and now he is exhorting them, he's admonishing them, he's giving them a game plan as to where to go from there. Number four, remember. Number two, repent. Number three, do again to redo. Remember from where you have fallen. That word fallen there, when I looked it up and did some study on it, it carries with it the the understanding of neglect. That they have neglected something. That something in their lives has fallen into disarray, we might say today. The Ephesians were neglecting something or someone, and their neglect was not leading them to a good place, and Jesus warns them about that. You know, lately, because I just figure I'm going to not be here forever, and I don't want to leave a mess for our kids, I'm uh, in the process of taking old photo albums and all these Pictures and scanning them in and putting them all into uh, Apple, uh, Apple Photos so that one day somebody can just pick up an iPad like this and have all of our photos all in one perfect little place. And in doing so, I've been looking at some old photos. And I've been remembering how it was back in 1979, which was a long time ago, when Marilyn and I started dating. You know, back then, we just couldn't get enough of each other. I mean, every hour, we wanted to be together, head over heels in love. You know, Wednesday night, I showed this picture of me at 20 years old, sitting in these overalls, you know, and stuff like that. She had a matching pair of those overalls. We dressed alike. We did everything together, always just holding hands staring dreamy-eyed at each other, as we just sat for hours and hours. Oh, how sweet. Now, after 43 years of marriage, we love each other more than we did on that day that we wed. But, even though we love each other, Some days it seems like we're just going through the motions. Just kind of doing what we're supposed to be doing as a married couple. We're neglecting that relationship. We're in a small group. In fact, I get to lead that today too, praise God. Um, We're we're in a small group and it's a group on marriage and it's about strengthening our marriage. Um, You can't neglect it. Ephesus has neglected something. I mean, even though the church was awesome and doing awesome works, maybe they were just going through the motions as they did those good things. You know, a good marriage is one thing. A good marriage built upon decades of heartfelt, deep relationship is another thing altogether. A church doing good works is one thing. A church doing good works motivi- motivated by heartfelt, deep relationship and love for Christ is another thing altogether. Remember, Jesus is telling Ephesus, those things you have neglected. Verse 2. Jesus tells them, repent. You know, repentance speaks of a change of mind or a change in direction. Jesus is telling them, remember where you used to be, look at where you're you're at now, look at the direction you're going, turn around and go back in the other direction. Repent. Repent. Look at how things used to be, and look at how things are today, and you need to repent for that. Now, verse 3 would be evidence that repentance had actually taken place. Verse 3, redo. After you remember and repent, then do again the things you once did, implying that do again them with the same love that you had at first do them again. Continue to do them. I mean, it seems like Jesus likes what Ephesus is doing. He just wants them to do it with the same love that had motivated them to do those things in the beginning. Maybe that's a word for all of us. Maybe in our own lives, maybe our own you know, lives have become more about going through motions. Maybe before we preach, Maybe before we lead worship or teach children or make coffee. Maybe before we cook meals at home or or drive the kids to sports or maybe before we grocery shop or maybe before we go to work and just to put a roof over our heads and, and food on the table. Maybe we before we serve, in whatever way God has called us to serve, maybe before we do that, we just need to sit down. We ourselves maybe just need to remember and repent so that our service does not become just an act of going through the motions, but it becomes more so an act of love for Christ and for others, that our motivation in our own hearts are right, Now, after pointing this out, Jesus moves on and he gives them another. He points out another good trait of theirs. Verse 6 Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know much about this group that Jesus hates, that he detests, that he just does not like at all. But according to an early church father, Arrhenius, the Nicolaitans led lives of unrestrained indulgence. Doesn't sound good, but it sounds like what's going on around them in the city of Ephesus. And in two weeks, when someone preaches on the church of Pergamum, we're going to hear that there were some in that church that were actually holding to the teachings of this group of the Nicolaitans. So here's what we can say about this, is that Jesus is pleased that Ephesus is on the same page with him with respect to this group, that apparently is living a life of unrestrained indulgence in the culture around them, the sinful culture and moral culture around them. And as they're doing this, they're apparently teaching others to do the same, encouraging others to do the same. I mean, I'm thinking of Romans chapter 1 where, you know, Paul says they were doing all these things and, and, They were basically supporting others doing them as well. They're encouraging it. Hmm. Well, Jesus wraps up his message in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. During his earthly ministry, Jesus often used the phrase, he who has ears, let him hear. That's still Jesus' message as he reigns and rolls in heaven. He says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear. Jesus is always calling us to hear what God's Spirit has to say to us. To hear the truth of God. And you know what? He's going to say that to every one of the seven churches. Focus up, churches. Listen, pay attention to what you're hearing. And then Jesus ends this letter with a glorious promise. He's going to do the same thing in all seven of the letters. Even by the time you get to the last church, which doesn't have a lot of good going for it, he's going to give them one of the most glorious promises at the end, if they will heed his words. In the case of Ephesus, the promise is that whoever conquers, whoever sees the victory, whoever overcome, whoever perseveres in the faith, that that person, Jesus, will grant to them the right to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. You know, I mentioned earlier, Jesus walking amongst the lampstands is, is kind of a flashback to the book of Genesis. In the beginning, in the garden, where, where God is walking in the midst of his people. And here we have another flashback to Genesis. This flashback is a little different. It's it's more of a reminder. We can read into this. It's a reminder of the tree of life that was in the garden being lost. That access to paradise was lost as the first Adam rebelled against God. No longer Upon rebellion, upon sin, no longer was man entitled to eat of the tree of life or dwell in the paradise of God. But also in this promise, we kind of see John jump ahead to the end of Revelation. At the end of Revelation, all of that which the first Adam lost for man has been recovered. It's been reconciled. It's been redeemed. It's been restored by the second man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam. It's a glorious promise. This book begins in the paradise of God where God is dwelling with his people, and this book ends in that same paradise, even a better version of it, paradise 2.0, where God is dwelling with his people once again. And it's the work of Christ that has done that. Now, as we end this message, there's one thing some of you might say, well, you know, he didn't talk about that whole removing the lampstand thing. I mean, I know some people are just sitting here, did Ephesus lose their lampstand? Or did they heed the warnings of Jesus? And that's a question on some people's minds, and it's a very valid question. Do the Ephesians this morning, their time, did they meet together in Ephesus today? No, they didn't. The city of Ephesus itself fell into ruins after being conquered by an invading army, after earthquakes, after that river, that harbor was just silted in, and after mosquito-borne diseases forced them to move away from the river. So you know what? We don't know whether or not the Ephesian church heeded Christ's warning about returning to their first love. We don't know. But here is what we do know. We know that Christ's church is still alive in Turkey today. We know that Jesus still has his messengers in his right hand and he is still walking amongst his churches in Turkey, here, and elsewhere worldwide. We know that Christianity continued in Ephesus for quite some time. In the second century, when persecution was there, the church was still there. One of the things I found most fascinating, I'm going to have Paul put up slide number three. One of the things I found most fascinating was walking around and seeing these carvings through the streets, in front of shops, and different things that were in Ephesus. Ephesus. You might know the Christian fish, the ichthys. And this is an ichthys wheel that started appearing in the second century, carved in the streets of Ephesus. Paul, go to slide four. You could see when we were there, the tour guide showed what that was about. The Greek letters, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, imposed upon each other. That message was all throughout Turkey. When Marilyn and I visited Turkey, we had a Muslim tour guide on our bus. We'd been with him four or five days, whatever it was, going around to see different sites and really similar to what Stephen did. He saw more churches than we did, but We had a Muslim tour guy. He kept telling us all the time, I'm Muslim, I'm Muslim, Muslim. On the last day of our tour, he comes on the mic, and there's, I don't know, 60 people, 70 people, whatever it is on the bus. He comes on the mic, and he says, Today, our bus driver does not speak English. So I can speak a bit more openly with you. He says, I am a Muslim. That is true but I am a very bad Muslim because I am really a follower of Jesus Christ. I am a Christian. And then he went on to tell us that how even though Turkey is a secular nation on paper, that if people knew that he was a born-again believer and follower of Jesus Christ, he would be fired from his professorship at the university. If anyone found out, he was a Christian. So he just told people, I'm a bad Muslim. No matter what Ephesus did or did not do in response to this letter, the church of Jesus Christ is still alive, brothers and sisters. It is, Jesus is still working worldwide, both in Turkey and ancient Asia, and here in Nashua and in this place. So how do we respond to this message? Well, I'll tell you what, if we are a follower of Jesus Christ, we can just do what we always do. We can can draw close to God that he might draw close to us. We can remember all that God has done and all that he does. We can repent of those times that we have maybe done things for the wrong motive and and not... done them out of love for him, and we can just do all those good things going on in the future motivated by a heartfelt love for Jesus. And then we can praise the Lord that whether or not anybody heeds Christ's warnings, he is still at work. He is still alive. He is still alive saving people and calling them on to himself. Now, what if you have not yet placed your trust in Jesus? How can you respond? You can respond by hearing what the Spirit says. If, if you feel that you are a sinner, if if the Spirit has revealed that to you, that you are a sinner, that you are maybe one of those Nicolaitans, just uh, indulging in things that are not good to indulge in, and you know that. If, If you've got this heavy weight, well then, you can believe. You can believe upon Christ this day. You know, football season, I think, starting, I started Thursday night, Patriots play today, and You know, through the years, you always see somebody holding up the old sign, John 3.16, with no explanation. But you know what? God did love the world. And he loved it in this way, that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes upon him will not perish, but will have eternal life. We can believe that. If you have never put your hope in Christ, put your hope in Christ today that he has forgiven your sins. Because God, John says in John 3, 17, God didn't send Jesus in the world to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. He came to uncondemn us. So today, you can put your faith in Christ. And if you don't know what that means, Talk to me after service. Talk to Stephen. Talk to one of the other leaders of this church and we'll be happy to walk you through it. Let's pray. Almighty God, everlasting Father, you dwell through the ages. You love us. You created us as evidence of that love. You, you are always with us. You, you were with the church in Ephesus. You are with believers today. Help us to heed this, this message. Help us to examine our own selves, to look into our own hearts, to, to, to check our own motivations as to why we do things. Help us to remember your goodness. Help us to remember the gospel. Help us to remember how God, you became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. That you could live on our behalf the life that we can never live and that that you would then die in our place as a substitute so that our sins could be punished that we could believe upon that truth and that we could share in your inheritance, help us to remember that it is not about what we do or have not done or will do or will not do, but it is about what Christ has done to reconcile us to you. Help us to remember and then help us to act upon remembering in repentance, in faith, in belief as we walk forward and help us to share this message with others. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.